Welcome to Collective Conversations. I'm your host, Mike Brewer, and I think this is the eighth or ninth episode of Collective Conversations. I usually have a different opening, but uh, trying to get used to the new one. But uh, I'm very excited about today's guest, uh, Eric Brown. Eric Brown and I go back uh, a very long way. I think 15 years, 10, 15 years, plus minus, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but uh, I think we got to know each other over Twitter. Uh, Eric left Village Green Apartments back in 2003 to start his own company, Urbane Apartments. And I'm excited to talk to Eric because Eric thinks about the multifamily industry and I think just industry and business at large in a very different way, really counterintuitive to a lot of the ways that multifamily operators think about the business today. So I will unpack a lot of that as we get into this interview. But Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's uh, It's been a long time since we chatted and uh, it's uh, good to see you again, my friend. Yeah, likewise. Eric, can you kind of unpack a little bit your you're working in the corporate world for Village Green Apartments, and I imagine that one day you wake up and you want to scratch the entrepreneurial itch, and because you have this background in, in multifamily and apartments, you, you sort of scratch that itch by going into apartments. Can you kind of unpack that story for us? Yeah, so it was, um, as with a lot of things, you know, it wasn't necessarily planned other than, um, you know, I was sitting on uh, on the front porch with my kids on Father's Day. And, you know, an, an event had happened to me um, when I was a really young guy. Uh, had a business. It didn't go so well. And, you know, I had to abandon that. And then I went went to work in, in, in the corporate world. And, it, and, it, and that did go relatively well and I was talking and my daughter looked at me and she said dad that was 20 years ago if you want to go do something what are you waiting on and and they were probably in their early 20s at the time they're 40 now but anyway um so I, I so I was thinking about that and then a very strange thing happened it was around bonus time and um and, and this is something to think about I believe all of us as managers and leaders, sometimes it's easier just to deliver. And this is the old village green phrase, straight scotch, because um, it, I don't even remember what year it was, but it was a, it was a low year in the industry. And, um, you know, the whole topic of bonuses, people have this expectation, right? Well, I already had an expectation that, I knew where we were. There really probably was either going to be less of a bonus or no bonus. But the character that I reported to tried to convince me about percentages. And I'm like, why don't you just tell the truth? No, no, this is. And and in that moment, I decided um, I'm going to go do something else. I'm going to, I'm going to try to roll the dice for myself. And, and it, wasn't that the guy did anything wrong, but my point is sometimes we try to convince people on these analytical things, and, and, and many times that's appropriate. Sometimes sure. it's not. Sometimes it's okay to say, geez, Eric, you know, this has not been a good year, and here's what it's going to be. Because it was not about the amount, it was not anything other than that whole nonsense that you get caught up in sometimes and so 
I um, and at the time I reported directly to uh, Jonathan Holtzman, the, the founder of the company, at least the founder during that time frame, his grandfather started it. And I just said to him, um, this was a few days later, I said, you know, um, I, I want to take a I want to I want to take a shot at rolling the dice. I said, I don't have another job with anybody, but I, I, I'm going to head out on my own. And he goes, OK, well, how much time do we have? And I just blurted out nine months. I know because none of this was planned. I just did it on like, you know, we were together. And so he goes, OK, <laughs> well, so as we sort of did that and they started looking for my replacement and um, a, a few months into it, we had, I had bought our first property, which was a little 25 unit in Clawson, Michigan. John came to me and he said, you know, and this is typical Holtzman fashion. You know, anybody can do one property. But if you can do multiple ones, we'll see if that unfolds for you. But in the meantime, why don't you continue working for us? You've always watched over our construction development budgets and money. And you can do it part-time. We agreed on, a, he said, look, anything under 100 units, we don't have to talk about if you buy. Anything over, we should, because that would be competition. And I worked there another 10 years <laughs> while we were doing uh, getting Urbane going. And so that was really, really, um, uh, I'm so grateful for that because that bridged the gap between so many people head out and um, the whole thing, build it and they'll come, build it and they will come. That's kind of a myth. I mean, yeah, I didn't have a good plan for, because the other thing that happened was, um, you know, I, I was running the construction development and there was a lot of resources around me, both people, mm -hmm. uh, finances, all of that. And then suddenly now I'm out here, I got to go to the mail. I got to, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh. So that was really swell. And, uh, and then we just, you know, started, um, we got our first one and then our second and, you know, just kind of went on after that. Here we are 20 years later, whatever. Oh yeah. And that, and that 20 years, I know we, I think you and I were introduced say roughly 15 years ago. I, I may be making that up. I think it was well, 2007. I was, uh, uh, so that's back in the blog, when the blogging thing kind of first started. And right. I don't remember what platform that Seth Godin had at the time. Like WordPress. And, and, or no, not WordPress. Uh, it was beginning with an S, I think, or something like that. It doesn't matter, but yeah, right. Squidoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I'm like, hey, Mike, I'd love to blog on your blog. And that's kind of how we got going. And uh, we, you know, developed quite a friendship from that. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. You know, it, it, it's interesting as I was reflecting before hopping on today to do this. I, there were times where I think you and I um, agreed on a lot, but I think there were moments where we agreed to disagree. And I think yeah, in, sure. in hindsight, though, I would tell you, I I have come around to your way of thinking. I think it was a function of being in a, in a corporate environment, being in a big structured conglomerate of property management and stuck in kind of old ways of thinking. And I wasn't ready 
right, for the way you were thinking about the world. But isn't it interesting? Just think about self-guided tours that, that we're doing today as an industry. Tell us, when did you start doing that? <laughs> I don't know, probably 12, 13 years ago. Um, and, and what was so odd about that was, so our model it had some inherent flaws in it, starting with, um, you know, the, the, the industry sort of uh, rule of thumb is for every hundred units, you have one manager and one, you know, one uh, maintenance guy and yada, yada. And that's probably still relative, still relative. But for us, we had 30 units here, 22 units over there. And in the beginning, they were fairly close. They were, they were up and down the Woodward Corridor, which is between, um, you know, like Royal Oak, Berkeley, those, those suburbs of Detroit. But in order to, so when you think about leasing an apartment, we all know that a certain percentage of the appointments don't show. And so at best, a leasing person, even if it's 15 minutes down the road, by the time they get in their car, drive over there, wait a few minutes, drive back, you've burnt up 45 minutes to an hour. And, right. and if you have a 30% no-show or 50%, whatever it is, the most tours you could do in a day is probably six, right? Yep. And if say two of those don't show up, that's four tours in a day. I'm like, oh my God, we're, we are, we are um, restricted by the amount of leasing people we have. This is yeah. nuts. So, and there was a company here in Royal Oak that was, you know, all the mom and pops kind of always did a few of these things, but I like, I'm like, well, what if we try to market around it? So we we got a marketing company that helped us and we got this like sheet and we, we didn't want to make it look like we were doing it to lower cost. Mm. We wanted to try to do it so it added to the experience. And it occurred to me, um, and I, I use this analogy a lot. So if you're buying a new car and the and the salesman tosses you the keys and they say, hey, Mike, you go ahead and take this home for the night. Take your wife out in it, you know, show her the car and you just bring it back tomorrow. Because some dealerships do do that. Versus if he's sitting in the back seat, you're like, you drive around the block and you take it back. Completely different experience. And in the time our office was set up to where we were really just one big sort of room, and although there was a divider between where my office desk was and I could hear everything was going on and people would come back in. And at the time I said, you know, ask, ask how the experience went, you know, and I would hear these people go, oh, we loved it because they would could keep the key and they could bring their mother and father back and look at it if they wanted to boyfriend, girlfriend. So the point of all of that is we went from being able to do, say, four to five tours a day yield per leasing person to we'd done upwards of 30, one person, right? <laughs> and, and so that was just a game changer for us. And, um, and at the time, 
it, it, so when you're going around looking at apartments, I think sometimes you forget what company you even looked at it oh, from. Sure. So they definitely remembered us over that. And uh, so it worked for us uh, in a number of ways. And then Jeepers, fast forward a few years. And, and now the, the level of um, the, the, the technology and everything that has smoothed that experience out today is mind-boggling to me. And, <laughs> you know, be, obviously because of the pandemic, suddenly it's like commonplace now. Right. Uh, may, maybe, maybe that's a stretch still, but it seems like it is. And certainly the folks that are using, you know, some of the stuff that's out there, I'm sure you guys are doing all of that. Or are you? Maybe you aren't. We are we are doing some of it. We haven't yeah. built the entire thing together yet. Um, we have we have some visions about what the entire thing should look at, but we are doing bits and pieces of it for sure. Sure, and it's just so much smoother. And I've always thought at the end of the day, while I believe, so this is a double edged sword. I certainly believe in salespeople, right? We everyone in our organization should be selling every moment they're right. selling they're either selling on the brand or they're selling on the experience so but at the same time the traditional salesperson in my opinion many times it, it gets in the way yes. because particularly if you're back to that whole corporate script they're like okay so I have to get the checkbox number four right. and and the prospect may be in a hurry or right. They may want to take more time. And so I just thought there was a lot of things that made sense about the self-guided tours. Um, had no idea it would morph into what it did, but it was great. It, you know, it, it brings to mind, I mean, we, we were spending a lot of time on Twitter back then, and, and you were doing guest posts on my blog, and then I know you started your own blog. And I, so I don't know where to attribute this conversation except to say that I remember when you, you posted about self-guided tours, and you specifically posted about handing a key to a prospect to go and have the experience that you, you just designed for us or, or laid out for us. And the blowback you got for that you know, from the, the purists that come came out and talked about how you're losing the sales piece of that, you're the other people who had a, a sort of risk in mind in the sense that you're going to hand a key to somebody who you didn't vet on the front end. And what if they steal everything? And it was just amazing, the blow up. Yeah. And, and, you know, and certainly some of all of that stuff has happened. I mean, we've had sure. we've had a couple of um through all that experience, we had a fair housing thing that came up. We had a slip and fall that came up. So, yeah, stuff happens. Sure it does. But, but by and large, it, um, it was relatively smooth. And many of the things – so one thing that – and I say this from a, a loving, beloved standpoint. Our beloved industry – is really, really good at fair housing issues and accounting, right? right? But Very letting good. someone wander around by themselves is like, you know. Um, yeah, I, I think that's true. And by the way, I count myself as one of the critics in the early innings when you, when you made that post. So I, 
I was given the blowback just as much, but it, I, so I have a question there because I think that it would provide value for, for the audience here, especially the, the youth that are coming up in the industry. What, what compelled you in, in that you, I have to believe there's a little bit of angst on your part when you're thinking about doing this thing is sort of counter to the way that we normally do things. There's a little bit of a like, oh, should I do it? Should I not? Maybe there wasn't for you, but what caused you to just say, you know what? I'm just going for it. I'm just going to do it. Whatever the risk might be, we'll figure that out when it gets here. But what is that little thing inside of you that may be different from that person that hesitates and doesn't act? So um, I've always been a result. Like, um, don't measure me on how we get from here to there. Measure us on the result, right? (laughs) And so I've always been completely okay with responsibility relative to that. That makes sense. And and the other thing is, you got to remember, so someone just, I don't know what I was watching. Oh, I was talking to an old friend yesterday who's in the personal development business. And he said, you know, because we were talking about fear and age and a lot of that kind of stuff, and not to get off on all that. But he (laughs) said, you know, the biggest piece of, of personal development is unlearning. Ooh. You have to unlearn first because we have these filters. We all have filters. True. My experience in the multifamily business prior to starting our own management company, I wasn't on the management side. I was in construction and development. Matter of fact, I didn't even like property managers. (laughs) I liked liked leasing people because if if the lease up was going well, Everything was great. If the lease up was going sideways, everything was bad. And so I just, I didn't, I I didn't come up in that whole realm. So I did not have to unlearn some of those things. I didn't know any different, to be honest with you. It's like, I can't do this and have, you know, 10 leasing people. We couldn't afford to be in business. So and so, and, and I've never been afraid to try new things, um, most of which they don't work, but some of them do. So I think, I think it's, I think part of it is I had an advantage of not knowing that, some of that, that stuff. That's a, that is a great lesson. There is, there is great value in, in walking in uh, with a beginner's mind, so to speak, and, and uh, attacking a situation because just to your point, you don't have these. And, you just don't the have other it. thing that comes to mind, we so probably while I was at Village Green, we built maybe 35 communities. So there would have been about 35 clubhouses. And yeah. back in the day, they were all mostly the same design, right? Sure. And although some of them would fit differently depending on the footprint of, of the of the property. But we had trouble, and we were building, I think, in five regions back then. We would always have a leak in all of the regions but Chicago. And I'm like, the heck's going on in Chicago that we don't have that leak there? And the leak might have been in the racquetball court. I don't remember. And we had, a, we had a superintendent back in the day. His name was Dave Cresto. He was a great superintendent. I said, Dave, none of your clubhouses leak. What's going on? Are you not... Because I don't follow those drawings. He goes, 
speak all the time. So in that moment, it kind of set in stone a little bit. Not, not that we should live our life outside of the lines, but there's value in understanding how to round corners. But when you round the corner, there's risk involved in that, and there's some exposure. So all I would say to young people is, I would encourage people round round corners, right? Round yeah. corners, and not to get deep into stuff. But I middle management. I would if you're stuck in the middle, get out, get get up to the top as soon as you can, because in the middle you're so restricted, right? You're trying to navigate through things, and you've got a boss, and your boss is a boss. And they don't like you to round corners because, you know, stuff can go wrong and it does go wrong. And it's certainly easier if you're running a small op operation and it's just you. Um, but I did that when I was in the corporate world, too. But you better have a beeline to get to somewhere where. Um, and, you know, one thing that you know, Jonathan Holtzman was crazy. I mean, most most successful people who run large corporations do have a bit of crazy. He invited rounding corners because he was pretty logical. And he might say, uh, Eric, don't do that anymore. Okay, I get it. We won't do that anymore. But I've never really gotten in trouble for doing, you know, because – by the time he would figure it out, I figured it out it doesn't work either. I would just <laughs> stop do something else. Yeah, that's right. Anyway, you know, I think, not to go on a different topic, but I think one of our, a huge exposure in our industry right at the moment are the alarming amount of property managers who are leaving the industry. Oh, yes. And so you you got to ask yourself, so all this that I never liked property managers, you know, my wife Kim said to me one day after we started our business, she goes, you know, we're now just lowly property managers. And she said that in a fun way, but, you know, there are a lot of, it, it's tough. They have the most pressure. I I almost think that we've got some of this backwards. Not that you don't need middle management because you do. You need layers. Sure. But those people, you think about, we put a property manager out there. They're running a forty to seventy million dollar asset, and we think they you do that for sixty thousand a year. Yeah. Yeah. We're delusional. That is a bit delusional. That's right. That's right. And I'm not saying every company does it that way, but it's a challenge, you know, to find that talent. And and certainly the really good ones, they fast track to the top. That's right. And uh, I don't know. I just think that that's, that's where the action's at. I, you know, it, I, I think you bring up a really good point and I, and who knows, I, I have a, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version of a thesis that I have in the, in the, and it kind of starts with the punchline and the punchline is that we, we have traditionally put people into these positions 
that are not good at every single aspect of what we ask them to do, no matter how much training we give them. They're not good at every aspect of the business because of the demands that we put on them, right? And it, and it all flows from the top down. And, and my thesis is that if we can now introduce a nice hybrid automation or centralization and automation with giving these people more pointy type roles and responsibilities, meaning narrower scopes of what we're asking them to do, they can actually be good at what we're asking them to do right we yeah. take away all that road routine work that, that they know you know you know they sit in a chair behind a computer they nest and they just i got to get a report out my regional right and they don't do customer service right. people in the eyes they get so. really good at managing reports that's right you know that's and right. and i get the, that there's a value in the reports i understand all that I, you know I spent about four years, three years in Arizona on a on a project five six years ago, and um, I had the opportunity to um, be on a panel for the Arizona Multifamily uh, Association, and we were judging the best of the best property managers. And so I was with I think there was like six of us on a panel. It was a long day; it was like about nine hours, and we interviewed. Yeah, you know, a, a whole bunch of people. And so I'm just kind of keeping notes on a couple key things. One was how many, what was their staff per number of units? Because at the time I was on this kick of one to 100 is way off. You don't need that many people. Um, whether that's fact or fiction is a whole different matter. But one thing that was a common theme is these managers, and these were the brightest of the bright in the state of of Arizona, right? And they were bright people, bright people, young young folks. And uh, over and over, I heard that the word technology, technology, technology. And I was keeping track. You weren't one to one hundred. If you had two hundred and thirty-two units, you had three people not two and a half. If you had 270, you might have actually had four people. So not one of those folks said we lowered costs because of the technology. And when you think about, if you go way back in the day, it was before each of us, but we can kind of remember it. Remember the one right system where you had to come across and come down and it all had... Think about how long that took, right? Yeah. <laughs> now, now all that stuff's gone away. And and then there's this whole other thing of, you know, the property management software is so um, accelerated now. I mean, you know, but I don't know what you guys use, Yardy or um, they're, they're almost like their own ILS now. That's I right. mean, it's pretty amazing how many things they're doing. And and then you throw the, the bots in there, and some of those are getting better and better and better. That should be allowing more time for our staff, but it doesn't seem to be working out that way. And I'm That's like, why is that? Like, what's going on that we've got, you know, certainly you could say, oh, well, bots don't work. 
They probably didn't when they first came out. But now, some of them are pretty solid. And I'm not necessarily a fan or not a fan of that. I'm just making a point that so much of our stuff is um, is automated, but yet we don't seem to have any more time. And then the other thing, which is somewhat of a, a sign of our times, everyone seems to be burnt out, Ooh. right? Yeah. You know, and, and, and certainly this pandemic, by the way, I want to say one quick thing about that because it involves uh, one of your old, I think you even work for him actually, but I was watching a a um, a video of Sam Zell and he's being interviewed, and this was in late April of last year. So we had just kind of we were about forty five days into the pandemic, and uh, in typical Sam Zell fashion, right? He, <laughs> he's talking about things, and he but he said something that stuck with me. And, and he was yammering about, he remembered, I don't know if it was his parents or his grandparents, they were, um, they lived through the Great Depression. And he said one thing he came away from all of that from, they were scarred. And he used the word scarred. He goes, I feel that when we come out of this thing, people are going to be scarred. And so like I'm looking around now, that we're allegedly out of it, but we really aren't out of it. Um, people are scarred. People are scared. It, and, and not to get this about vaccines and all that, but if a vaccine works, you shouldn't have to wear a mask, but yet some people still wear a mask and then there's all this confusion. And so I just think that our staffs at every level, they got that stuff going on, right? That's right. And that just is a whole nother level of compassion and empathy. And at the same time, we also have to perform. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's, and, and it's, it, I guess the point of all of that is it's affecting more than just the service industry. Um, and then take our maintenance guys. Oh, yeah. They never stopped, right? They're going in and out of this stuff like it's so. It's That's tough. right. Yeah, I, I, I do think I, I think this is not just isolated to our industry. It's just business across the board. It, for the next, who knows? I, I'm just making up a number here for conversation's sake. Eight, eighteen to twenty-four months from now, and you know, until until that time we're all going to go through this thing together in a way where we do have to, to unite under sort of that umbrella of compassion or empathy, et cetera, et cetera, and give everybody a little bit of grace in that, you know, some are comfortable, uh, people are comfortable at every variable, right? And, and, yes. yeah. and I think that because we're in the housing industry and because we use, and we're in a service industry, I think, it's incumbent upon organizations to uh, help in that, let's call it therapy, right? Because this is really like PTSD. It, we have to help in that therapeutic uh, journey of getting people through this next 18 to 24 to 36 months in any way that we can. We can't just look at people as a way to get business done. We have to look at them holistically and we have to think about their mental health 
as well as their performance on the other end. And to the extent that we can help in that or insert ourselves in the equation, we should do that. Yeah, and those of us who might have been on the edge or have mental health um, issues already, all that sure. just got exponentially expanded. And so, you know, I think the whole, the whole in, to your point, not only in our business, but, but, but in many of the businesses, we are uh, restricted by the labor pool available. Because I think a lot of people have gone through and said, this isn't worth it. I'm going to go do this. Or I'm going to learn how to resell on Amazon or whatever. Um, and I also feel like this whole work from home thing will not last forever. Oh, Me? No. I, I feel like, you know, not to get uh, too crazy, but I feel like, you know, most businesses are run and owned by capitalists, and many capitalists are command and control, whether we agree with that or not. They're just, there's a lot of them that are, sure. and, and they want to kind of look out over things and see it. And I mean, I've never been a big work from home guy. I don't like to work from home, really. <laughs> Maybe, yeah, but you know, I I just always like to rather come in the office. But I, I think you know, people kind of got used to working at home, and, and not so much in our industry because you do have to be there. Although we all figured out kind of have to how to do it for a few months. But sure. I just think the point of all that is. There is a lot, and then and then think about another thing. Say for two to three years from now, when all the high school kids are, are you're interviewing them, they through the pandemic, they are going to be thinking differently. If we think they're going to think the same, we're we're delusional. What are yeah. we going to do? Because they have that whole experience. That's right. And so I think, you know, it, to some extent, my opinion on technology is how can it get any better than it is? It's, it's so good now. There's so many good things. Not all of them are good, but many of them are good. we got to figure out the people side of this thing. That and me, to me, that's the next innovation of because to some extent, Mike, we're still doing most of that the same way our grandfathers did it. Yeah, and I don't know what the answer is necessarily, except that you know, I, I love and have always loved Airbnb. I mean, I just think their model is really strong. And, it, you know, you think about it, they, they do the marketing, they do the lease for you, they do the collections, and they even now do really well the, um, the uh, mitigation if there's an issue. Sure. And we've got about 20 units that we do Airbnb. We only do monthly because we're not licensed as a hotel. We, so anything over 30 days, we can still do that. And um, I feel like their customer service is pretty high, you know? And the way that they 
and, and you think about it, we as operators, some of us have trouble managing the asset that we can feel and touch. Right. They don't have that luxury. It's right. someone else's asset. Yeah. And they're and they're managing that experience. I guess we should define what are we managing. We should be managing the experience of the customer. That's right. Nothing else matters. That's right. It just doesn't. So how can we do that with all of these sort of challenges that are going on? Um, and do it differently and better than anybody else. I'm not sure the answer to that, but I think that's what we should be thinking now. Um, you know, yeah. we all get stuck on things like, oh, we have 24-hour uh, maintenance, and and they and they'll get your stuff done in within a certain amount of time. Maybe the customer doesn't care about that. Right. Maybe the customer would rather just have an automated text that says, "Here's when they're coming. Here's when they're leaving." You know, how do we integrate pieces of technology that we already have? And maybe some people are already doing those kinds of things. Sure. But to me, that seems like a significant risk for the young folks that are coming up that will at some point be sitting in your chair 10, 15, 20, whatever, how many years from now. And they're going to have to be doing it differently, I think. I mean... I don't know where you live, what, what, what's going on where you live, but have you noticed the amount of Teslas that are now on, around? The amount have of... You paid it. What was that, the amount of... So, have you know? so in the past, say, 90 days, here locally, I'm seeing a Tesla on oh, Tesla. every corner. Yes. 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 So, suddenly, someone's, you know, since his, his, the, whatever the model is, and I'm, you know, I've always been a Elon Musk guy, uh, follower, but lots yeah. of people aren't. I get it. I, sure. the, but the only point I'm making is there are a boatload of people starting to say, I'm going to buy that car online. I don't really care. I don't know where you have the service and all that. I don't really care about there's no infrastructure yet, but I'm doing it anyway. Yeah. yeah. And so <laughs> those people want to be serviced differently. That's right. That's right. And so how do we how do we do that? Right? And and how do we get how do we get some fun back into the whole thing? Right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be such a grind, but it is. And then you know, I think about things like um what if we were teaching financial literacy to our employees? Yes. Yes. You know, um, and help them figure out a way because we live in this world. And, you know, as I've aged personally, I've sort of drifted toward the whole, I'm not a fanatic minimalist, but stuff doesn't mean that much to me anymore. Sure. Right? Sure. Thing, and it's kind of like, so as I've done that, I've really just gotten rid of any kind of debt and all of that. And there is a freeing moment when you know you don't have payments. That's but there right. was a time when I got a bigger car, I got a bigger... Every time I got 
a bump in salary. I moved. So, and then you think we, we buy things to house our stuff. Now houses come with a game room and a bonus room. All that is is to put more stuff in. And if you want to do that, that's totally okay. I'm not, I'm not judging anyone, but I do believe there's some value in because since lots of times people get into that and they can't get out. That's right. And that's right. And maybe part of our training should be some life skills. Not that that you could say, oh, it's not our responsibility. I get that. It's probably not. But you no, know, I, I, not to cut you off there, but I, I agree with you in that, you know, we, my wife and I had the great privilege of having somebody that took care of our kids from, from time to time that was just, an amazing human being, but she couldn't balance a checkbook, much less like do a bunch of other things. And we ended up helping this person facilitate the purchase of a vehicle, right? She had no idea how to do that. And, but she, yet she was in her mid twenties, right? And, and, and there are a lot of people in this industry that, that are just like that. And I do believe, I think Peter Drucker said this, so I, I can't take credit for it, but his one of his thesis was that business and organization was set in place to serve the people that serve it. And that didn't mean necessarily and, and completely and wholly about the business outcome. It was about the business serving that person as a whole person and helping him build character. Let's let's reduce all that to the word character. Help people become yeah. of great character so that when they're going out into the world doing whatever it is, they can do it well, right? Yeah. And that I think a business should be, and I think to your point, shifting the way business is looked at to this day, it's still, look, you still got to make money, you still got to sustain yourself, but you can build people at the same time and bring them right along with it. You know, Jack, Jack Stack wrote a book called The Great Game of Business. Absolutely. <laughs> we, we are starting to teach that great game of business using that book yeah. in this business for that reason. To help people understand you know, who used that book extensively was a small, a, a small uh, deli in Ann Arbor, Michigan called Zingerman's. I don't know if you've ever heard of them. I just did a uh, post about them. <laughs> you did. Oh, great. So they, um, if you're ever around there, go over and get one of their $20, uh, you know, pastrami sandwiches. But they have figured out how to create a $45 million business out of a single deli. But how do they do it, right? They have the zing train of businesses. You know, when they got to a point, and I think they've got like 150 or 200 employees now. When they got to the point where they needed an HR department, they also got into the training business. So they started selling um a Zingerman quality training, and it's not cheap. It's a couple thousand bucks to go for, for two or three days. So they were experts at turning an expense into a revenue stream. Yeah. But Ari, I forget what his last name is, James is a Z, but he's one of the owners, and he wrote some of their books. I don't know if you've read any of their books, but they're they're, they're fabulous. But he said something that. Um, was really telling. It's his opinion that if you're going to make a change, 
a procedural change, small, medium, or large, figure two years. He feels that in order to change something, it really takes upwards to two years before it goes from however you're doing it now to it's running smoothly. Now, I have the opinion for decades, well, no, we just said how to do it. I sent you an email. Didn't you get it? <laughs> yeah. Way more than that. He says you have to keep saying it over and over. And the other thing you have to do is someone in your company, and they do it really well there. you got to tell the story. What's yeah. our story? How That's would we expect a new hire to know that? And, you know, Village Green had a thing called um, – VG University or something like that. And I always thought that was pretty cool. And and um, but you went you you left with this big binder of stuff that I don't know if anyone ever read anymore. <laughs> but but the whole theory that, that Zingerman's has is to keep is to keep doing it, right? Keep talking about it and talking about it and talking about it. And you know, another thing they do that I always thought was fascinating are vision statements. He's like, forget about business plans. Do a vision statement. And all a vision statement is, is they do it out 20 years. What do I see in 20 years? What does it look like? What does it feel like? And they get everybody's buy-in. Yep. So, and he said it takes six or nine months to do a vision statement because it goes back and forth. And again, I... Um, shortchanged myself by always working for command and control kind of guys. You know, they don't believe in that kind of stuff. I'm like, no, <laughs> here's how we're doing it. Don't you understand? But the company I worked for in, in um, they did a consulting work for in Arizona. They were, um, it's the first time I'd ever worked for a female. And I love that. She was wicked, wicked smart. Um, her name was Leslie Bryce, and she was a complete 100% consensus. It drove me nuts. <laughs> she was making a flipping decision, and she would just look at me, right? But, it, you know, I feel like that sort of, we need a dose of that. It may not work in every situation. but And by the way, she did make decisions, but she, she was a consensus. The whole company is is consensus and it yeah. makes a big difference I, I think it does I, th I think especially as you get bigger and you need you need buy-in from constituents across disciplines right you it's it does take longer but it does yield a better result in the end if you if you because you all the people are working. Silence. yeah that that's right Eric I know we're, we're running up against an hour here and I want to I want to make sure people know where to find you is it right to you held something up earlier before we started recording is that is that a public thing you want to share now or um, that... sure yeah that's totally fine i i would love for you because i think the the company that you're referring to that's when you started authoring this particular book right At it that is time. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so if you don't so, mind sharing that and then share where we can find you online before we wrap here Sure. So I just um, in the last uh, week got a book published. I've been working on it for way longer than I thought. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's the second act entrepreneur. 
Um, you can find it on Amazon and um, you can find me and my email is ericbrown.urbane at gmail.com um, or on Facebook or Twitter. And uh, yeah, happy to help anyone I can. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would tell any of our listeners and or our viewers that uh, Eric will absolutely respond to to email or or any of the social channels. But uh, if you want to think counterintuitively about the business, and it seems like no matter the topic, Eric Eric can twist what seems like common logic around into a a different kind of logic that is absolutely just as applicable. And many times it's far in advance of the time that things actually take mass adoption or get mass adopted in our industry. I've always found him fascinating in that respect. So Eric, thank you for the value you've dropped on this industry, at least in my opinion, for a very, very long bit of time. And and I hope we can do a round two at some point. Uh, any, because I, I would time, talk- Mike, I've always, I've always enjoyed talking with you and, um, and thank you so much for the kind words. And, um, you know, you're a vanguard yourself, my friend, and uh, it's uh, it's been fun to watch your progression. And, you know, I think you found a, at least a couple or more pretty good companies to work for throughout your career. And so that part, you know, as young people are going through, part of it is picking a company that you're compatible with. You know, there's lots and lots of companies out there, and I'm not judging good or bad. It's whatever your, you know, your personal uh, things are. But so anyway, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Definitely. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you next time around. Awesome. Thanks, Mike.